There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory will discuss her stories and answer your questions. The focus is on craft. Lane is a Pulitzer-winning journalist and someone who has inspired a great following across the country. I'm thrilled to work with her. My name is Maria Carrillo, the Enterprise Editor here at the Times. Recently, we've talked about The Girl in the Window and a follow-up to that story. This week, rather than focusing on a particular story, we'll talk more broadly about reporting and how to deliver a powerful story. So here's the thing. When people talk about Lane, and usually when they talk to, to me about her, they, they whisper her name, Lane. Um, they often focus on her writing ability. But the power of her storytelling is really driven by the reporting. So Lane, how, talk about when you learned that lesson, because most young writers seem to try and write their way to a good story. When did you figure out that you had to go out there and really come back with notebook full of great details. Well, I, I never went into this business to be a writer. You know, I know so many journalists who are like, I'm going to do this to pay my bills, and then I want to go write a novel. I want to go write short stories. You know, I was a news reporter from the time I was like 10 years old. That's what I wanted to do is to dig up dirt and bring down institutions. And so I spent my first like 10 years in a bureau where I was writing two or three stories a day, and you had to report for information, you know, it was what is what do the readers need to know? What is at stake here? What um, what ramifications is this going to the city council meeting going to have, or this fishing ban going to have, or when's the hurricane coming? You know, it was all about a lot of information. But I was an English major in college, so what I was drawn to read was much more novels and short stories and fiction than nonfiction. I wasn't like a consumer of nonfiction, so I'm reporting for information, but I want to tell stories, and that was kind of what. What came together when you started the narrative writing team with the pilot, and I, I went from writing three stories a day, mostly covering meetings or some awful news event or a murder trial or something, to like, hey, you can have three whole days, or by golly, a whole week to work on a story, you know, and that changed completely my ability to spend more time reporting. I wasn't like, oh my God, I have to write this in two hours, got to shag a quote from you, got to get a statistic in here and be done. It was like... I can go over and have coffee with the old lady in the waterfront and see her house and smell her old linens in the attic and have her walk up the creaky stairs and get a sense of place and setting and character that I wasn't able to develop when I was covering news stories. So I think as a storyteller, I had a natural inclination to want a really good character and a really good scene or setting. Um, I had to learn how to report for that, though. I, I, I I wanted to use it, but I didn't know how to get it. So for those of you um, who maybe don't know our backstory, so Lane and I are working together uh, for the second time. We uh, met in uh, 1998 at the Virginian Pilot. Uh, I came to work there as an editor and had the uh, good fortune to uh, be named the editor of a storytelling team. And I got to pick a team from among the staff, and I met this 
hippie chick woman who showed up to interview for the job and uh, uh, she came in with like a, a gazillion ideas of things she wanted to write and uh, uh, obviously Lane was a great choice for that team and we had the good fortune to spend a couple years working together before she came down here to St. Pete and now we have the good fortune to work with each other again so um, so yeah and it, and casting back to then I think we were both we both got the opportunity to really think about craft and think about what we wanted to do with stories and how we wanted to tell stories and, and yeah, realize that all those things that Elaine just talked about, how sensory stories have to be, how much you have to really, if you're going to put somebody in a place and in a moment, the kinds of things you need to pull away, you know, to bring back and, and use in your story. So um, I was going to ask you, so what do you, what do you do now in terms of the reporting that you didn't do early in your career? Well, I think one of the best things that you did for me at the very beginning of this making this transition was send me to this workshop where I met a guy named Tom French. And Tom French was teaching how do you report for narrative. And his basic tenet that I still say to this day I think about is vacuum the scene. You know, when you're a young reporter, you're covering a meeting or you're covering a trial or something, you're listening for quotes. You're not writing down the benches were really hard and the lights were really bright and the judge looked disheveled and was drinking an you know, Diet Coke or whatever it is, you're not, that stuff isn't important when you're covering or conveying information for a news story. But it is really important when you're telling a narrative. So I don't always know what I'm going to need, but um, with, you know, Tom and, and your insistence, it was like starting to write down things like that. Every time you're in a, go, first of all, go to the scene. Don't do it by the phone. Don't do it by email. Go be there with the person. Go to their territory. Don't have someone meet you at a random coffee shop or come to the newsroom. You know, be where they are. That was a huge thing. Um, and vacuum the scene, meaning like just suck in everything that's there. So write down what color the walls are, where the, what the lights are, whether there's carpet on the ground, whether the person's wearing nail polish or has... Uh, makeup on or the dog what kind of dog is it was he a rescue dog or was he a pedigree dog and just every single detail that you want to put in to go as deep and specific as you can Um, and you know three-fourths of it doesn't ever make it in your story (laughs) but if I come back from reporting and I want to know what the toy was saying when the little girl pushed the button darn it I will have written down what that toy was saying you know not necessarily knowing if I'm going to need it or not I think that's a mistake when all of it, well, I made it when I was a young reporter, and I'm sure you did too. You like, you put your head in the notebook, and you're just trying to get down what people say, and you're not even, you're not even looking up sometimes and, and thinking about how they're saying it, you know, whether they're pausing, whether they have tears in their eyes, you know, what, what's happening around them, and you're, uh, and then you're also not taking in other details that might be really important in the story. Right, and you don't necessarily know that the details are going to have any meaning until sometimes you come back and start writing and then you're like, oh, that shows something really important, you know? Uh, I think the other thing, and, and I'll credit this to Tom entirely, is learning how to slow down. You know, I, I got so used to writing really fast. Sto- I could write a 20-inch story in an hour and get it in the paper the next minute, you know? And I could pack ton of information into two or three sentences just to like rollick through what you needed to know because I had to cram it in there and um, I remember Tom kept saying you need to slow down like be in the moment more you know let the readers kind of settle into the scene settle into the mindset and uh, I kept saying I don't know how to do that I know how to fast forward I don't know how to slow down and I remember he came over to my house and he brought a copy of, of a movie um, and, and it was a scene The Sixth Sense uh, and there's a little Amish boy in the car with his mom and they're at a stop 
stoplight and he's he's playing the movie and, and he said okay what's happening and I'm like nothing's happening and he goes no the mom just locked the door okay what's happening nothing's happening nope the little boy just turned off the radio you know so all these little tiny moments that to me it wasn't progressing the plot of you know seeing this murderer or whatever it was just little tiny moments but it slowed it down it built the tension and it showed you like she's locking the door for a reason he's turning the radio off because he heard something you know and so kind of learning to pay attention to those really moments you would normally like just blow off because nothing's happening you know to write those down and record that was, is that I, I remember him uh teaching a class where he used a scene from the movie witness with well maybe that's what uh, I was it was harrison of. ford and um oh god i can't remember the actress but but i remember like it was like a little amish boy in the car yes yeah. who was like who had seen a murder or yes, something he was like a was. witness Sorry, for crime. it was witness but and then there's a whole scene in that movie where there's no dialogue whatsoever and they're doing a barn raising and and yeah and tom would play the scene and say to you what are you taking in here and then you realize how much is happening even when people aren't talking and how much you could really be reporting and taking in um and i I, honestly, I think that's a lot. A lot of times, when people are stuck on a story or they don't really kind of, they feel like it's not all there. It's because they don't have enough that they brought back from the scene. Right, and you're not thinking about I might need this scene. You're thinking about what is this guy saying? But usually, seventy percent of what people are saying, you don't need anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I'd it's make also, that ninety percent, really. yeah. <laughs> depending who it is, I guess. But yeah. and there's also that idea of like listening to the quiet. I, I really learned how to shut up because of Diane Tennant, one of our colleagues we worked with, because Diane was like the quietest, mousiest lady who could just disappear in a room and no one would know she was there. And she was getting all this great stuff just by witnessing and observing and shutting the hell up. And I am not good at that. I'm like, I have to tell myself 10 times in interview, shut up, Lane, shut up, Lane. You, you know, you're ruining this. Like, I need to ask three follow up questions. No, you don't. Shut the hell up and write them down in your notebook and then go back and ask them. So that was something I had to really discipline myself to do and the whole idea of patience being patient with the reporting and then you know and like yeah watching a if you're going to narrate something watching it unfold and not getting in the way of it and then waiting to ask your questions and and letting the subject fill in the silence right you know i'm terrible at that but so many times if i can actually make myself shut up they'll give me something i never would have asked yeah. So talk about a little bit, because I know you, you, you do a great job of making people feel comfortable um, and how you get them to open up. Um, what do you do? I mean, besides being you, which for people who don't know Lane is basically like, you know, the nicest person in the world that comes to your house says hey can I tell your story <laughs> you say sure walk in so what do you do no I think that's the first thing is coming to their house you know letting people be on their territory um, so I'm entering their world I'm not taking them out of their world and boy you can get a lot of observational reporting done if you're sitting in someone's kitchen especially if you're in their bedroom I always have to go to the bathroom when I went to someone's house like legit I need to use your bathroom because you learn things about people in their bathroom you know um, so I, I think being in their world like immersing yourself in their world and and letting them even if I have to do a daily story even if I'm on deadline I want to give that person the chance to drive the bus so what do you think this story is about what would you like people to know about you do you have any questions for me you know and letting them feel like they're in control so that I'm not going in with like here's my 20 questions let's go one boom you know um, I, I want it to turn into a conversation more than anything if I feel like oh my god I'm just talking to this really cool guy I met at a bar then I'm like yes this, I am in a good place in my interview you know so I, I try to 
give them a little bit about me, which I didn't do as a news reporter. I didn't want the city council people or the commercial fishing people or the Coast Guard people to know anything about me when I was covering news. But if I'm going to come ask you about, you know, your dying aunt, I want you to know a little bit about who I am about a person because it's much more personal. Even down to the age, like we have to put somebody's age in every story. And a lot of women, especially my age, don't want to give you their age. So I'll be like, I'm really sorry I have to ask you this question, but I'm 50 years old. How old are you? So I, I give them back that. You know, I they usually tell them I've got two teenage kids. I've got two really bad dogs. I got a husband. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Who's a drummer, I drive an old car. And then boom, like you, they know a little bit about me, so I'm not like scary reporter person, I'm lame. So I picked out a couple things just to read to get people in that mindset. And uh, I should remind folks that if you'd like to read Lane's stories, of course, you can find them on tampabay.com. But um, this, this particular passage is from a story about Susie Weldon. And you maybe talk a little bit about who she was and or who she is and how you did that story. Um, so Susie Weldon's husband, Dan, was an Indy 500 race car driver, and she was his manager as well as his wife. And he got killed uh, in a race in Las Vegas five years ago. She had two little boys who were like an infant and two years old. And the racetrack community, the, the Grand Prix community here in St. Petersburg where they lived and the Indy 500, he was like an iconic, beloved driver to them. Really handsome, young dad, little kids. And they lived here in St. Petersburg. And so I, when he died, when he got killed, I approached her. I really wanted to write a story about what was it like for her. Like, she had been in this racing world even before she met him. So is she going to go back in this world where everything is so painful? How do you move on after losing your husband in this fiery crash with these two little kids? And I wrote her letters, and I sent her emails, and I sent stories to her house. And I went by her house and left little handwritten notes. And I had neighbors who knew me, vouched for me to her, and she just never responded. Like, never, not a screw you, I'm not going to talk to you, just like crickets, no response. So after about five months, when the sports editor stopped bugging me to go get Susie Weldon's story, I just backed off. And then last... January, out of the blue, she emailed me and she said, I've kept your email for five years and I wasn't ready to talk back then, but I am now. And so I was able to, she had basically gone into this like cave of grief for years with these two little guys and she was pulling herself back out and her oldest son was going to start racing go-karts. And so the story was supposed to be about like, you know, how Susie was doing, but it really was more about like, how do you let your son enter this world of totally dangerous race car driving when he's like six years old and you just watched your husband get blown up like that. So it became more of, I think, a, a mothering story than, than a, a widow story, if that makes sense. You know, my whole identity is not, well, it's not Dan Weldon's widow. This is Susie Weldon. Dan will, will always be my husband or, you know, be a big part of my life. And obviously he's the, the my, my boy's father and and all of that, but, um, you know, we're still here. And the story didn't, didn't end with his tragic accident. It's, 
it's still, you know, me and my kids and trying, you know, trying to create a life here in St. Pete. Again, sort of patience is a theme. In that case, patience for the story to come through. Um, so here's uh, having Lane read a little passage, but this is six graphs, and I was just going to, as she's reading, I wanted people to sort of take away how much reporting is in here. Like, so these six graphs, how much time and energy and effort Lane probably expended in trying to get the details that powered these six graphs. So, Yeah, we, we spent, I think, only about a month on this story. It, it wasn't like a huge investment of time. Um, okay. Chaos, blackness, confusion. For months, Susie couldn't get out of bed. While others took her boys to play, she sat alone in that big house Dan had built, surrounded by his trophies, mourning that their children would never know him, except through the stories of others. Hundreds of fans and drivers wrote letters. They wanted to honor Dan, find ways to keep his name alive, so Susie would drag herself into the shower and steal her way through public appearances. She took the boys to the next Indianapolis 500, where 300,000 fans donned Dan's signature white sunglasses. She took the boys to a go-kart track in England, where Dan's boyhood buddies told stories of his pranks. She took them to a top-kart race in Indiana, where a team owner presented Sebastian with his own go-kart. The boy, barely four, begged his mom to let him, quote, drive like daddy. Susie wanted to go to those events, to show her boys how beloved their dad was. But I felt like I had to share Dan with so many people. I couldn't figure out where I fit in anymore, she said. Every time someone told a story about Dan, it was like ripping off a Band-Aid. That whole first year, she kept thinking Dan was going to come home, just walk through that door and scoop her into his arms. It wasn't, I had, it wasn't until I had to go to the Social Security office and sign that form that said marriage terminated by death. That's what made it real. Talk a little bit about your note-taking, because I've seen your notebooks, and uh, they're, they're interesting <laughs> in terms of like, all right, so what do you... Explain for people what you do when you're out in the field and how you're how you're when you're interviewing people. So I use a big giant legal pad. I do not believe in those little skinny notepads. <laughs> and and I want that much space because first I don't want to keep flipping the page. Second, I don't want to have to go back when I'm writing my story and keep flipping the pages to find stuff. Um, but mostly because I want the space to sort of diagram things out. So if you can visualize a legal pad, the top margin at the top is pretty fat. And I usually use that up at the at the the beginning of it to write down sensory details. So every time I'm in a scene, I want to smell something, taste something, hear something, feel something, and I remind myself to use that space to fill those. Um, the top left hand corner, I do like a, a time clock almost. So I put the the date. Um, I started putting the year because sometimes my stories now are spanning more than a year of reporting. But I put the date and the time, and then each time I flip the pages, I update the time so that I know how much time has passed while I've reported this. Um, or gosh, it's taken this long for the jury to be selected, or this long for her to make the manicotti, or you know, I, I can tell a timestamp there. Um, down the left-hand side of the margin, this is probably the most helpful thing I figured out is because I want to ask like three questions for everything that you offer me. So if you tell me you like chocolate candy, I want to go, do you like candy bars or your peppermint patties? Do you like the little fun size ones? Do you like the big dollar size ones? You know, I have all these stupid detailed follow-up questions. But if I break up your conversation and I start asking you those, you lose your train of thought. So I learned that as I'm, I'm taking notes in the big part of the paper, I write 
huge quote marks around the quotes that are good so I can go back and find the really good quotes. And then I put little arrows on the left margin pointing to things I want to come back to and ask follow-up questions. So I can let the person continue their train of thought or continue their storytelling and then go, okay, wait, 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 I have some more details I need to ask you and, and go back at the end and do that instead of stop the flow. So everybody's probably not going to start doing that themselves. But I mean, I think it's a good, it, like whatever works for you, right? I mean, and that, that works for you. Like it reminds you and it gives you like, it keys you to certain things that you're looking for. And I love, again, comes back to patience, but I love the idea, yeah, not to interrupt people too. Like just to kind of take note that this is something you want to come back to. Yeah, because I know I'm going to need those other details, yeah. but I don't need them right now at yeah. this minute. I just want to forget to ask for them. You yeah. know what I mean? And And I also think like, learning this was a big girl thing for me <laughs> like like learning I didn't have to write down everything everybody said right. learning to listen for quotes so that while you're rambling on about something I know I'm not going to use I am not writing that down you might think I am but I'm writing down what your hair looks like and what your jewelry looks like and whether you're smiling or whether you're pausing or whether your phone's buzzing or all these other atmospherical and observational things I can write down while you're telling me this tangent that I know I'm not going to use instead of trying to catch up with everything and then have a bunch of quotes that I'm not going to work with. But go ahead and let them ramble. Cause let them ramble. You, and because it gives you time to do. And I'm half some... listening, but I'm, I'm writing down all these other observational things that they probably don't even know that I'm writing down, you know. And and also learning, um, this is Kelly Benham French basically used to get on me a lot for so many of my stories, especially when I was writing news, were like 70, 80% quotes. Right. And Kelly was always like, you can write things better than most people can say it. Yeah. So take it away. Unless it's a really great, perfect, encompassing quote or something real colloquial that gives you a, a flavor for the person, I paraphrase so much more than I write now. I, I, I like being in control of the writing yeah. instead of giving it over to quotes. That's one of the things I think that can make so many stories better. And people still, I, I think, get too hung up on quotes when it's true. I mean, hope, well, let's hope that everybody who's working as a writer can write better than most people can speak. And, and yeah, and then it does, it makes the story sharper, more lively. I mean, and then you save the good quotes. You save the one that really stands out rather than, yeah, they pop a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I think a lot of young reporters, me included, feel like if you talk to somebody for 20 minutes, you owe them a quote in the story. And and I usually start out now by saying, like, I may or may not quote you, but I really need your information or I really need your insight. So I'm not promising them anything because, man, I mucked up so many stories by saying, like, oh, I talked to 17 people. I got to quote 17 people. And no, you don't. And um, we won't go off into a long tangent here, but, you, you know. So people understand the difference between dialogue and quotes. So quotes are, you know, somebody's talking to a reporter, clearly. And dialogue is two real people talking to each other, and you're the reporter overhearing it. And the dialogue can be really beneficial. It can really, you know, it can be very illustrative. It can help you set a scene, and that's different. So it's still quoted material, but it's much better most oh, of the time. Oh, much more lively and real. And that's another thing, you know, I used to just want my person alone to interview them. I wanted to just be very intimate, me and you. And a lot of people are scared or intimidated to do that. And they would be like, oh, can I bring my roommate? Can I bring my boyfriend? Can I bring my mother? And I used to go, no. But now I'm like, sure. Because then they get in a dialogue, you know, where they have an aside and they're talking to each other. And it becomes so much more lively than just me interviewing. I, I'll be bringing whatever wingman you want to bring. It's fine by me. So, are are you still learning to be a better reporter? Oh my gosh, definitely. A better reporter, a better writer, a better editor. 
all of the above. I, this is going to be so intimidating for people. I still feel like I'm not worthy of most of the stories I write. You know, I feel like God, it's like the most high honor anybody can share is to let you tell their story. You know, there's that, that line from Hamilton, like, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. I get to tell people stories. I get to be the word that the rest of the world learns about them. That is incredibly intimidating. And I feel like I always want to do better. So on that note, uh, it's your turn, folks. If you have a question for Lane about any of her stories, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And please join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.